0: We're in John 15, let's go ahead and open up there, as we have these heavy lessons. I love going through the Gospels of John and Matthew, Mark, Luke, because it really is important that we always are learning from the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I always encourage people, you know, somehow, some way, let there always be a steady diet of the Gospels, you know, whether you're reading through the Bible in a year. You know, um, try to be in the Gospels or where you're studying or something where you're learning about the life of Christ. And as we're going through the Gospel of John, we come now to this time where Jesus is basically preparing his disciples for his death, for his departure, and he's going to hand the baton off to them. And think about it. These 11 guys, eventually would become 12 guys, which would eventually become, we'll just say 120 on the day of Pentecost, they turned the world upside down. I mean, it was a crazy time back then, but because of the fact that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were equipped by the Lord Jesus Christ, God did a great work in their life. And so this is where we're at in the Gospel of John. Jesus is preparing them. He's preparing them to you know, accept that responsibility now to take the Gospel to the rest of the world. Now, legend has it, and I don't think it's true, but there might be some truth to it, that the apostles actually threw lots and they determined who was going to go where in the world because they wanted to cover the whole wide world. Now, more than likely, they didn't uh, throw lots or whatever, dice or whatever. More than likely, though, they prayed about it. God, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? And then when you study church history, you'll find that they all went out And they did their job. You know, some went to India, some went to Russia, some went to Africa, some went to like more of the Middle East. Um, It's amazing when you study their lives. And you guys know, huh, that they all died a martyr's death. They were like clubbed to death. They were speared to death. They were crucified. I mean, just all the different things. Paul was beheaded, Um, the different things that they went through because the Lord had prepared them. And so just think if God told you, hey, I want you to know one day you're going to die, you're going to, you know, die, but you're going to get crucified. So Jesus told you that ahead of time, That way, so that when you're facing it, you're, you embrace it. And we need to know this as we're getting ready to go out and we're living in the world that we're living in today. We need to know these things are ahead for us as well. And so in the Gospel of John, um, where we're at, I wanted to actually show you kind of like a a bigger picture of where we are in the Gospel of John. When you begin the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, we have the incarnation. And so this is where Jesus, so you read John 1, 1 through verse 18, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so he comes and he arrives. Remember, the Gospel of John presents Jesus as God. Matthew presents him as king. Mark presents him as servant. Luke presents him as the perfect man, but John presents him as God. And so they're all simultaneously true. And so chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 is the incarnation of the Son of God. Then uh, chapter 1, 19 through 454 it is just the presentation of the Son of God. He's just there, he's doing his miracle in chapter 2. and chapter 3, he's preaching, he's talking about being born again. And so he's just presenting, he's presented to the people. But right away, it doesn't take long because they are so stuck in their religion and they're so stuck in their rules and regulations and, and the Sabbaths and all the misconceptions they had in the day, right away the opposition begins. And you see that in the Gospel of John in the very beginning, chapter 5, verse 1, all the way to chapter 12, verse 50. And so that's what's going on in in the life of, of Jesus as we're studying John. And then from that point on, chapter 13, all the way to the crucifixion, until he dies, Jesus is now preparing his disciples for ministry. And that's where we pick it up here in John chapter 15. We're in the middle of this whole thing. I think he's on his way. He's walking to the garden of Gethsemane. Last week we talked about abiding in the vine. This week we pick it up in verse 9. And notice what we read right here. Jesus says, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and have Abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you mere servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I've heard from my Father, I've made known to you. I've told you everything, secrets. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. What for? That you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I have commanded you, that you love one another. And so over and over again, we see in this section right here the word love, love, love. And here we see it begins, it always does begin with God's love for us. Notice again, if you would look at verse 9, Jesus said, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. And so Jesus is talking to them and he just says, Hey, just in case you were wondering the source of this whole thing, You know, think about, imagine if you would, how much do you think the Father loved Jesus? How much does the Father love the Son? I mean, we're talking about God the Father and God the Son. We're talking about them being together in that love relationship forever. I mean, perfect love. Imagine how much the Father loved the Son. And Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. It's important for us as we're going through life and we want to do ministry, we want to bear fruit, we want to glorify God, we want to finish well, we want to defeat the devil, you name it, all the things that we long to do, we want to bless our family. It's important for us to know that it starts with God's love for us. And Jesus says right here, I want you to know that as the Father has loved me, I I love you. There's a lot of people in the world, they question God's love. And I understand, because life is difficult. Life is hard. As a matter of fact, the pain can be excruciating. I understand that. But what we need to know, we have to receive and believe, is that God loves us how do you know God loves you? Well, he proved it when he died for you on a cross. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates, and in the Greek, it's the present tense, he continues to demonstrate his own unique love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is before you were even a Christian. He died for you. That demonstrates his love. So how much more so after you're a Christian? Yeah, I know we fail." Yes, I know we blow it. We all do. Don't think that you're unique and that in your failures and therefore God doesn't love you as much as he loves the person next to you because I'll bet you $100 the person next to you is worse than you. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's crazy when we look at these things and we doubt God's love because when you doubt God's love, it messes everything up. I mean, we could heal all the people who have suicidal thoughts, all the people who have, are suffering from Depression and anxiety and drug addiction and all the other crazy things if they could only believe and receive God's love. In Jeremiah 31.3, it says, The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. And so Jesus here, when it comes to life and ministry, love is going to be very, very important. And it, have to, it has to begin in, in the proper place. First, it has to begin with God's love for me. And that's what Jesus says there in verse 9. As a father, love me. I also have loved you. And then he says next in verse 9, Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. You know, it begins with God's love for us, but then it must continue and then hopefully it's reciprocated with a growing love for God. Do you love God? You know, he says, abide in my love. And we're like, well, how how do you abide in, in God's love? And he tells us right there that it's by keeping his commandments. Our love for God is manifested primarily in obedience. Now, now the, the, the challenge with that is that we do fall short. We do fail. You know, we fail in thoughts. We fail in the words that we say or fail to say. We fail in so many ways. The things we do, the things we don't do, just the people we are. And so when you're thinking about this, well, I don't know about am I abiding in God's love, you know, I just pray, even though we do fail, that we would never give up. Uh, Psalm 18 is a prayer that I always pray, where it says, I will love you, O Lord, my God, my strength. It's almost like the psalmist says, eventually one day, Lord, I know I'm going to prove that I love you. We're not, we haven't arrived yet, but that's my goal. I will love you. And, and Jesus says, the way that we abide in his love, the way that we prove our love for him, is by obeying him. Remember back in chapter 14, if you want to turn there, look at chapter 14 in verse 21. Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And so you're listening to the, 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 the voice of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you knew this, there's 800 commandments in the New Testament. There's a lot of commandments. How many of you hear, as you're going through your day, you hear the Holy Spirit talk to you and he says, don't do that? Have you guys ever heard that? The Holy Spirit says, don't say that. Don't say that. You know, because you want to say that. And the Holy Spirit says, no. It goes like this. Have you ever been there, you know? And it's this all day long. Did you know they say that we make actually 35,000 decisions every single day? You're going to look at that girl. You're going to do that. You're going to take that money. I mean, you name it. There's a million things that we do. Prayerfully, out of that 35,000, those 35,000 decisions, there are just decisions that are submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because when we obey, it's then that we prove that we love Him. You know, I don't know the percentage of the 35,000 that we would make moral decisions. But I think it would be safe to say that thousands of them all day long are decisions for or against God. And so we can actually prove our love for God thousands of times every day. Jesus says, you need to do this. You need to obey and prove your love for me just as I have obeyed and I've proved my love for the Father. He's definitely given us an example And so, just in case, you know, God's love is calling you to him. God's love is calling you to heaven. But if you're here and you're living in persistent, consistent, resistant sin, then don't deceive yourself into thinking that you love God. Because the objective truth is you don't. You have to repent of those sins. And then you can claim uh, with uh, assurance that that you love God. But when we understand that God loves us and then that love, it just, it sinks in and then we begin to change and then just love him back. You know, one of the results we see right here is the joy that Jesus wants us to have. Look again, if you would, at verse 11. He says, this is why I'm telling you this. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. I mean, it's so simple. God loves you. You love him back. You obey him and you live and you will experience joy. You, you won't be down in the dumps. You won't be de- de- depressed. You know, you, you can't live in sin and live a life of joy. But when you have that obedience, it's it's amazing what ends up happening. One person said joy is the most infallible sign of the presence of God. You know, it's different than happiness because in one sense, happiness depends on what happens to me and joy depends on what happens in me. You know, one of the things that you're going to see the apostles had is they had joy when they got beat up. For the gospel. Think about that for a second. So let's just say someone came to you and they said, Okay, you know what? I don't ever want you to preach in the name of Jesus. I don't want you to say that name of Jesus ever again. And so what do you do? You say, Hey, should I obey God or man? No, I'm gonna preach Jesus. And so they bring you over here and they just start lashing you with whips and pain and blood and broken bones and all that kind of stuff. What would you do? You know what the apostles did in the book of Acts? They rejoiced. There was joy. Because joy is different than happiness. Joy is when you're doing, you know, wow, what a privilege. I don't know if you ever, if you have that concept in your mind, but what a blessing, what a privilege. I'm so honored that I was beaten for the gospel. If you got beaten for the gospel, I think some of you here would say that's cool that's where they were when you're obeying the lord it doesn't matter what the circumstances are you might see a thousand people get saved or you might get beaten a thousand times in your face when you do what god calls you to do it produces joy and so we see that god says okay number one this is how love works my love for you Secondly, um, your love for me. And then thirdly, our love for others. Look at verse 12. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He says the same thing in verse 17. These things I command you, that you love one another. And, and, and we're to love others as Christ has loved us, which you guys know, um, I thank God for, um, it's unconditional. You know, it's not like one day, yay, one day, no. I mean, it's just constant. It's when I fail. It's when I so-called succeed. He says, that's the way I want you to love other people. Is that the way you love people? So he said the same thing in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And so you might ask, well, what does that look like as far as loving one another? And, you know, of course, that means a lot of different things. But look what he says next in verse 13. He says, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You know, when you're wondering, well, how do you love people? Okay, Jesus is leaving. The apostles are going to be taking over the ministry now. The ministry, not just life, not just having fun. The ministry to share the gospel so that people don't go to hell, they go to heaven. Okay, well, this is how it works. You got to love people. You got to love people. And what you have to do in all reality as far as loving people is laying down your life. It's not your life. We can't just do what we want to do. We have to pray and ask God, Lord, what do you want me to do? And for some people, it will lead to a martyr's death. 70 million Christians have been martyred. 90,000 Christians have every single year around the world have been martyred. Now, we don't see that here in the United States of America, but that's what's going on in the world. The the greatest love, we're talking about loving others the way Jesus has loved us, is to lay down one's life for his friends. Now, of course, he's speaking of of what he's going to do for them, but he's also speaking of what we will eventually do for others. Now, I remember way back... um, I, I think it was the 80s. To be honest, one of my favorite singers is Whitney Houston, okay? She, um, her life, her, her gifts, um, I don't know her whole story, how it all ended. I'm praying, I'm hoping somehow by the grace of God, you know, she's in heaven. But she didn't finish well as far as the way that, that she died, you know? But I, I will say that the, the one song that kind of threw me back as a Christian was a song called The Greatest Love of All. And, uh, and I remember, you know, a lot of times when you're listening to songs, you don't hear the words. You're, you just like the music, you know. And so beautiful voice and just amazing song. But the song, it, it basically says that the greatest love of all is your love for yourself. And so she probably, my wife and I listen to songs by Whitney Houston, love songs. So I don't want you guys thinking I'm coming against her or anything, you know. But I I will say that that's not the greatest love of all. I understand. I understand. We're living in a day where people have low self-esteem. I understand that. People want to, you know, kind of cover that. And so what do they do? They go to the other extreme. Um, But what the Lord Jesus says is the greatest love of all is to lay down your life for your friends. I pray you would know your value because you're created in the image of God. He loves you. You're the apple of his eye. That's, you know, that's where we find our value. But what we need to know when it comes to loving other people is we are called to lay down our life. The world will kind of say, hey, take care of number one. Where God will say, Jesus, others, yourself. That's the acronym for joy. You know, it has to be a love that's willing to live and die for one's friends. And so here, it's interesting what Jesus says in verse 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And some people might read that verse right there and they say, well, that doesn't sound good. Is that the basis of friendship is you have to do whatever I command you. Well, what he's basically saying is that if you are obedient, if you have that heart, of obedience, we talked about that. If you love God, then you have now entered into a relationship with God. And there's a lot in that relationship. But part of that relationship is the fact that you you have this friendship with God. And so that's kind of how it works. And, and what Jesus did is he laid down his life for his friends. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I've made known to you. You know, when you become a Christian and, you know, we're covering things today that if you wanted to, you can take each and every one and do a hundred sermons on them. But, But try to take it in. I have a relationship with God and because I have a relationship with God, I have this friendship with God. I am... I am the friend of God. And, and part of the reason he says that right there is, number one, I'm laying down my life for my friends. Number two, that I, that I tell you secrets. How many of you have friends that you tell secrets to? Not, not bad secrets, but you know you open up to. You're transparent. You, know, you can share this with them because they're your friend. Well, that's what God is saying to us. Hey, you're my friends. Uh, not just like this work relationship. We have a friendship and I and I tell you things. You know, when you read the scriptures, probably the, the one that's identified most frequently as God's friend is is Abraham. He's called the friend of God in Second Chronicles chapter twenty in verse seven and Isaiah chapter forty-one, verse eight. In James chapter two, verse twenty-three it says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. And so, again, belief, relationship, salvation, then it it leads to friendship. And so when God was about to destroy um, Sodom and Gomorrah, God came and he had this conversation with Abraham and he was telling him things, sharing things with him. And that's what we see here. Now, just as a quick side note, it doesn't mean we're no longer God's servants or we'll be referred to as such. As a matter of fact, in verse 20, We've seen that we are servants. What he's saying right here is it just simply means that we're more than mere servants. And so when you look at this, again, this is my commandment that you love one another. In in verse 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Did Jesus do that for us? Yeah. Now we have to do that for others. And you're like, well, Manny, how do you do that? How do you lay down your life for your friends? Um, It may mean that one day we die. But when Jesus called us to be Christians, okay, you guys got to know this. What was the initial invitation? What was the initial invitation? He said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him do what? Take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me, right? Right? And so take up his cross every day. So it started there. So laying down my life, it just means that we have to make sure that our ambitions are in line with his. I was blessed yesterday talking to a young adult and she has aspirations uh, for her future and career and it's really, really cool. There are desires that are inside of her. She's very gifted, right? But I love the fact that she said, I'm just praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. You know what that means? That means that she's asking for God's guidance in her life. And that's all. I don't know what it is for you guys. I've told you a million times that you might be the president of the United States one day. You might be an owner of some amazing business. You might be a missionary. I mean, what a difference it makes when people will maybe lay down their lives in that way. You know, I was thinking about Amy Carmichael. She was a missionary to India for 52 years. She never had a furlough. I was thinking of someone like David Livingston. He was there in Africa. Uh, and man, what a work that God did in him. So much so that when he died, they buried his heart there. You know, yesterday, I'll share this with you guys. I was texting my daughter. We have kind of like, like a, a relationship like that. She's like my adopted daughter in Cambodia. It was 13 years ago that we went to Cambodia, and I was playing, you know how they do this, patty cake or whatever with her and it was just awesome and she was just uh, I think she was i don't know she was very young 11 years old and i just she captured my heart and so anyways we ended up uh, coming back from that trip and opening it up to you guys as a church and saying hey would you be willing to sponsor a child in cambodia because over there twenty dollars goes a long way and the part of the reason I wanted that is because I wanted to maintain a relationship with her. I wanted a connection with her. I fell in love with her. I just, abs- just like that. And you know, um, it's so it's been so cool. We've been able to sponsor them for 12 years. And it's just a beautiful work that what God has done. Our daughter, she loves the Lord. Her biological family, they're not saved. She's asking us to pray for them. But our daughter has now, finished up with not just a degree, a college degree. She's got her bachelor's degree. Now she's looking abroad to see how she's going to get her master's degree. And she loves Jesus. Now, how does that happen in Cambodia, in a place where only... 3% of the population is Christian. How does it happen in a place like that? Well, you want to know how it happens? I mean, there's a lot of people involved, and of course we can't identify one single person, but there is one uh, person I will talk about. Her name is Catherine, and she has been mom to these 30, um, you know, and they're not all orphans. Some of them are. Some of them have been abandoned. Others are just coming from impoverished communities where they would never be able to get an education, But they come to her, and and she's there, and she has, she's not married. She has laid down her life. Just like Jesus is talking about. That's how it works. Where you and I, we really, truly, honestly get with God and ask him, Lord, what are your marching orders for my life? Not just, what do I want to do? And there is a sacrifice. So, so Jesus here, in sharing these things, he says, this is what, the, the way it works. This is how you love one another. He says right there again in verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go. And we talked about this, and I hope it's clear that we should bear fruit. Now, and I was thinking about so many of you guys, even just saying, "I'm part of a church. I'm going to go on Sunday mornings, even though I don't feel like it," because you've laid down your life. I was thinking about many of you who said, "I'm going to serve in the church," and even though I have a a job and there's a lot of responsibility in my my you know whatever my job. I'm going to supplement on top of that a ministry that's almost another full time job. You've laid down your life. I was thinking about people who give, and you know, it's not easy to give nowadays $25, $50, $100. That could go a lot of different directions where you could have a whole lot of fun and buy a whole lot of stuff. But you have chosen to lay down your life, not just the pastor. It's a church. It's a people who embrace the calling upon their life. I think of, you know, others that are out there in the front lines and that are Christians and, you know, in government. I mean, praise God for those who are following His calling upon their life. It's not easy. It's not easy but it's what God has called you to do. He said, this is why I chose you. I didn't choose you just to go to heaven. I didn't choose you so that you could just have fun and get everything that you want. I chose you that you could bear fruit and that fruit would be everlasting. And that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give you. And that's all part of ministry because when you get God's heart and you start praying the way he wants you to pray, you know, not just, uh, fervently, that's part of it, passionately, faithfully, I believe in you, but also when your heart aligns with his heart, I mean, this is so awesome, he gives you the desires of your heart, so he begins right here just telling them a lot about love, a lot about love, a lot about love, but then he talks about something else we probably don't want to talk about, and that is hate. He talks about hate. He talks about how if you live like this, then you will be hated. He says there in verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my words, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. Uh, Some of you have. Some of you maybe not yet, but the day is going to come. It is just helpful, it's imperative to know that the real Jesus was hated by the world. That we need to know that so that when we're hated because of Jesus, then we will know that we are in good company. Now, why does the world hate Jesus? Well, there's a, a, a thing, 1 John five nineteen. I always share this verse with you, that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And so when we're talking about the world, we're talking about the world system. We're we're not talking about all the people. We're talking about the way that Satan is in control of so much. As a matter of fact, in, in that verse right there, 1 John 5, 19, it says that the world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The word sway is not there in the Greek language. The word under is. The world is under the wicked one. And so what that literally means is the world in, in, that, in that sense is under the control of the wicked one, is in, is in the power of the wicked one. And not all, but you guys have to know this, you have to know this, that not all, but most of the media is under the control of the wicked one. Most of the movies are under the control of most of the music nowadays, especially because we've drifted so far from God. A lot of the education, even some of the government, is under the wicked one. So you guys know that, right? So when you're watching the news, you already know there's a narrative. You already know there's an agenda, right? You guys know that. When your kids are going to college and their professors are there telling them, "Hey, I want you to write, you know, a paper. This is the topic I want you to talk about, and make sure you talk in ways that I'm, I'm right on board with you," because that's the really the system that we live in, and they're molding and shaping, like the Bible says in in Romans 12, 1 and two, they're they're being conformed to this world. And so when, when Jesus says you're going to be hated by the world, it doesn't mean you're going to be hated by everybody, but those that are caught in that system, and there are a lot of them, will hate you. And so when we're there, you've got to understand that you're not alone. It, it helps me a lot to know, okay, if they hate me, because I don't know about you guys, how many of you here, you're, you're wired in such a way where you don't care if people hate you. You're like, I don't care. How many of you guys are like that? I'm just curious. How many of you guys are like that? Right? I'll be the first to admit I'm weaker than you. I like people to like me. I want, I would like to, I don't know, there's something about that. I want people to to like me. And when they don't, I'll be honest, it kind of hurts. But I've learned what the Bible says. I've learned to go against the grain of who I am. And why did they hate Jesus? Why do they hate Jesus? You know what? Over in John chapter seven, if you want to turn there real quick, this is probably one of the main reasons they hated him, when Jesus is talking to his brothers and his brothers didn't believe in him, he said to them there in John 7, verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify of it that its works are evil. That's why. Because he speaks up because he testifies of the fact that its works are evil, so they will hate him. Now, they hate God because, number one, of his correction, and that's why later on Jesus says, if they receive your word, they receive my word. He's talking about his word. He's talking about his message. They hate God because of his correction, and they hate us for the same reason, but also because of our connection. Notice again what he says there in verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. They would love you because you were of the world, yet because you are not of the world. You guys have that sticker? Not of this world? This is where it comes from. Also in John 17, he says it again. He elaborates more on there. But he says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is why when the disciples got persecuted, they rejoiced. Because they knew it was actually a good thing. You know, if I'm loving others with God's love and God's truth, I will be hated. Now, let me just clarify something. Some Christians are hated because they hate. I'm sorry, but I just have to say that. The way that you present yourself and the obnoxious, unloving way that sometimes things are spoken to non-believers, that's not love. Jesus said, I mean, the Bible says in Ephesians 4, verse 15, speak the truth in love. It doesn't mean that Christians are bashers. It doesn't mean that we speak a word out of, out of, out of context. You know, we got we to gotta use, you know, tact to make contact. Now, everybody's different. Some people are more like John the Baptist. But when I look at the life of Jesus, I see that he really only, like, got all, you know, corrective with the Pharisees. You know, with the prostitutes and the tax collectors who were considered the worst, what did he do? He just loved on them. Some Christians are hated because they hate. I'm sorry to say, let that not be you. Remember this, we hate the sin, not the sinner. And for that person to come out of whatever sin that you're identifying, they need to get saved. Now, how is that going to happen? I don't know. I'm not the best fisherman in the world, but I do know that certain fish, uh, they bite on certain bait. You know, yes, we need to present the law. No, we can't be ashamed, but you have to be careful that you don't scare them away. You have to try to, like we read earlier, God said, with an everlasting love, I have drawn you with loving kindness. So don't be hated because you hate. But listen, listen, don't be loved because you're a compromiser. Because one day you will stand before God. You know, the, the world hates the real Jesus, not the fake Jesus, not the phony Jesus. The world hates the real Jesus, and that's why they hate real Christians. Jesus said in Luke 6, 26, and this is a very important verse, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for so did their fathers too the false prophets. And so they speak well of you. Everybody likes you. Why? Because you compromise. And Jesus gave a warning. He said, whoa to you when, when that happens. You know, they, they hate, and they're going to hate us, and, and sometimes it's okay, and you got to be ready for that. You have to, okay, Lord, here we go. I'm going to make a stand. You know, they, they hate us because of the correction. They hate us because of the connection. Last night I had a dream. and I probably shouldn't even share this with you, but I, I've I'll always had this recurring dream that the devil's trying to get into my house. And so I don't know if I've told you guys before, you know, I pray, lock the doors, lock the doors. I remember I had a dream and he's trying to get in the door and so I go and I lock the door and he's trying to get in the window so I go up there. Last night I had a dream that he was trying to get into the church and there were these glass doors And I was running with, uh, as fast as I could, I was running to try to hold him back because he was trying to get in the doors. And there's different ways the devil gets in. One of the ways is through compromise. And we look at the church today and they've capitulated to society rather than making a stand for the scriptures. See, we have to understand it's okay, it's okay. Jesus said, they're not going to like you. You know, for us, we're safe because we just teach through the scriptures and we have the love of God in our hearts. We're not like just picking on one thing. We have to ask God for wisdom and all these things. But this is why they hate. They hate because of the fact that there is correction. They hate because there's a connection with Christ and the devil knows who you are. You're the kids of God and so he hates you. And they hate because of condemnation and that is because they're not saved. Look, if you would, As we go through here in verse uh, 18 again, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you because they love their own. Yet because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're also going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you, For my name's sake, why? It says right here, third reason, because they do not know him who sent me. See, they're not saved. And that's why they hate you. And so, what do you do when they hate you, guys? What do you do when they hate you? You hate them, huh? I hate those guys, man. I hate them. God, get them. And we start praying those imprecatory psalms. Lord, break their teeth and dash their children to pieces, you know, and we think it's okay. And God says, no, listen, you love them. And only the Lord can tell you how to love them. Sometimes you have to share things that will hurt. All I know is that when we're looking at this, you got to know they're not saved. And here you are rebuking them and judging them. How can you judge the non-believer? The Bible says you can't. You have to try to win them to the Lord. It's so important for us to have that understanding. You know, when you look at this, it is this you know, finishing up here as we go through in verse 22. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. In other words, so we have what's called the general revelation, special revelation. General revelation is creation and conscience. And so everybody sins when they violate the the conscience that God put inside of them. Everybody knows that they're sinners in need of a savior. But when you get the special revelation, when you see Jesus for what he did, and you hear, hear what he said, there's even more of a guilt involved. And so you know, when you look at what Jesus did and the words he spoke and the works he did, I mean, it should convince us, wow, he's, he's my savior. But if you don't open your heart, then there's a greater guilt. And so he says here, as we read through, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they've heard they have no excuse for their sin. He who ha- he hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. And you look at the end right there, they hated him without a cause. It just is heartbreaking to think that some people will not bow. Their knees to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I pray, you guys, that we would love God, that we would love others, that we would know his love for us, and that if we start living this crazy, radical life for the Lord, you know, and so we have to do what he calls us to do, and we have to say whatever it is he called us to say, and we have to make a stand wherever he wants us to make a stand, and if they hate us for it, then we're okay with that. Why? Because that's what they did to him. And you're in good company.